So today we have a great show. My wonderful Indian colleague, Dr. Sugar, will tell us what his plans are for to celebrate Black History Month. I have a lot of plans, as you can imagine. Without referencing coming to America? Uh, to the oh, classic. now I may not have any. Or Martin Luther King? <laughs> also, I'm going to tell you why I'm not entering the NFL draft for the 2019 season, so stick around. You're listening to Recommended Daily Dose with Drs. Clinton Coleman and Suraj Sugar, the not-so-average health show with a unique spin on what's making headlines in healthcare. Welcome to Recommended Daily Dose. I am Dr. Clinton Coleman. He is... I am Dr. Surad Sugar, Chief Infectious Disease here at Holy Name Medical Center in lovely Teaneck, New Jersey. So Black History Month is obviously my favorite month, wouldn't you agree? Right after Christmas, I think. Right, it's, right. It's a great time. So today's podcast, I'd like to focus on black future or black to the future, if you will, but specifically how it relates to black men and their health. All right. So a very timely topic indeed and very uh, clever uh, choice of words there. No, I understand this past weekend there was a African-American health fair here in Teaneck held at Holy Name Medical Center. Tell me a little bit about that. I think you were involved. Oh, it was great. We had a great turnout. Right. I think part of it was that we got the women involved, so all the men came. So ah, when see. you just invite the men, they don't show up, but all the women came. And it was a great time. We talked about uh, health and nutrition. I talked about high blood pressure. But, you know, the focus for me, so black women aren't necessarily the problem. I think black men are the problem. So... If you didn't know, they have the lowest life expectancy of any major demographic group. So right. Under- so what are the reasons for that? I mean, is this because of society or is this because of health? What is this, education? What is the reason for so, that? Uh, so it's a complex problem. It's not just unhealthy choices or unprocessed foods, which I'm sure you, you like to eat a lot. Right? Uh, try to eat as little as possible. We may talk about that a little bit later, but uh, why we may want to avoid that. Continue. Um, but also, um, you know, lack of opportunity or access to health care. So this speaks of the broader problem. You know, as an infectious disease physician, we look at public health issues, not just uh, local health. So you're talking about we have to look at society issues. We have to look at issues of poverty, inequality. Right. All the things that sometimes aren't mentioned enough, right, in the media and and, and, in our public discourse. So we used to think that African Americans were inherently unhealthy, which is not the case. So, you know, it's part of it is, you know, historic race problems, right? So... Is there a distrust, you think, of the medical establishment? So anytime healthcare has reflected what ha- what's happened in society. Right. Right. So, you know, the race problems have led to a mistrust uh, in the healthcare system. You know, one thing that comes to mind is the Tuskegee Airmen uh, scandal, as you know. So, so let me clarify. So they weren't airmen. Oh, uh, they weren't airmen. They weren't airmen. So, and they weren't given syphilis. Those are two common uh, misconceptions. misconceptions. Okay. So it was patients who had syphilis on their own accord. And they were involved in this experiment, and they were monitored for 40 years without treatment to find out what the natural progression of the disease was. Right. So in the infectious disease world, we look at secondary syphilis, tertiary syphilis, basically seeing what happens as it progresses. And you're saying they were studied without treatment, withheld. Right. Treatment was withheld. When the treatment was available. Right. So the treatment wasn't available initially, but it came available, was penicillin, obviously. Right. Um, within a few years, but they still weren't offered the treatment. So not only it affected them, but it affected their families, so their their wives, kids. So we joked and said it's not airmen, it's what have you, but this has been uh, in The reason why people think it's airmen because right? there was a movie. There was a movie. With Lawrence Fishburne. I thought he looked great in that jacket, but uh, that's a different story. He, he really uh, did a good job. You have that jacket at home? Uh, I have a members-only jacket at home, yes. But, you know, how does that, how does that portray to today? Now, so I'm of, I'm of, of uh, uh, Asian, Indian-Asian uh, descent. 
I can certainly provide very good care to people of all different backgrounds. But why is it important, you think, that a African-American may prefer or may perhaps even have better results with an African-American physician? Um, I, I don't think that's a black or white or, in your case, an Indian thing. I think patients feel comfortable when they can relate right. to the, right. the provider, right? So whether they speak the same language, there's not bias on both sides. So if I'm seeing you, you're expecting something. If you're seeing me, you're expecting something. So right. I think it's, there's no expectation. The, the slate yeah. is clean. But, you know, I think the mistrust is, is a big deal, right? So for a set of people who have been disenfranchised and, right. and for lack of a better term, abused historically – you know, they're not rushing to see the doctor, especially one that doesn't look like them for Doesn't look like them or maybe can't relate to them, same background, et cetera. But, you know, we talked about this, I think, in previous episodes, but uh, this is the whole idea of this cultural competency comes into effect. And this is not just speaking a different language. We're talking in America, in a melting pot, in a society where we have so many people from all different uh, creeds and backgrounds. What makes this country great, we still have to realize that we have to be aware uh, of differences, even the very small differences, right? Right, and we're a culprit too, so we we have this decision-making bias, right? So we see it in race and gender too, so when a woman comes in with chest pain, it may be different than... A man with chest pain. Exactly, so they right. treat it differently, and it, it ultimately can dictate less aggressive medical therapy. Right? I think numerous studies, we won't get into it today, but numerous studies have shown that if you have an African-American patient and perhaps a patient of a different background, they may receive different treatments for the exact same complaint. Or socioeconomic status, right? All right. But also, which I think the most important part of this, and you alluded to that, is, you know, lack of black healthcare providers, right? So we black folks make up 13% of the population, but only 4% of physicians. So vastly underrepresented. Underrepresented. On the flip side, I think Indian Americans are actually one in five of all physicians in the United States, so we're vastly overrepresented. Why is that? Well, that's a little of a tangent, but I tell you, when I grew up, I had two options. I had two options. Only way out of the hood in India is only way uh, engineering, or you can become an engineer, you become a doctor, and uh, perhaps a pharmacist. That was really what I was presented growing up uh, in this country uh, as a respectable profession. That's actually a conversation for a different day. But yeah, I was pushed early. My father was a physician. I was very happy that I uh, ended up the way I did. But that there is some cultural, uh, at least in the past, I think that's kind of going away now when they realize right. you could do better in law and business, et cetera. But, you know, kidding aside, we have to have our healthcare uh, provider represent our patients and our population. And I think we do them a disservice if we, if we don't, don't adequately recruit and encourage and have role models like yourself, uh, physicians of other minorities. So did you do any mentoring this weekend? I did the electric slide. Oh, you did? Yeah. So that dissuaded Actually, people. Actually, I did not do the lecture slide, but the lecture slide was being done, and was I, I refrained in my white coat. The cabbage patch, you also, or no? No, nah, see, no, no cabbage. Now we're getting racial. Listen, so, I do a great cabbage. Cabbage patch is across all uh, racial boundaries. But so my, my point is, I think that is something that we can control, right? We can't undo a race issue. We can improve our cultural sensitivity, but we can also improve, you know, the physician. Um, Physicians that look like us. So right? basically so, you're saying more, more physicians in the pipeline, right? If a right. young so, high school kid says, hey, you can do it, I can do it. Right. That's, that's very so, powerful, very valuable. So the amount of black doctors now, you know, especially black males entering medical schools, is exactly the same as it was in 1978. So, so you're so saying any increase is mostly uh, within the African-American female population as opposed to the African-American males? Correct. You know, there's many reasons for that. You know, medical schools were segregated until recently, right? right? So with that, there's a late start, but... You know, medical school is expensive. Um, most people 
I don't, I don't know, know how much you paid or in debt for. About Listen, if you, don't, if you don't go to a state school, I, mean, I, I mentor medical students uh, now. I mean, the average is at two hundred thousand plus. It's 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 a it's a mortgage. It's incredible amounts of money that uh, that they, the debt that they take on. And also, you know, we've shifted away from affirmative action and minority health programs to try to, you know, even that balance. So I think that's why you're seeing that that shift from. Um, you know, black males entering the medical field. The reason why it, it's also important is because we, we alluded to this, but patients tend to be more compliant with the doctor that they can relate to. And there's been studies showing that. So they looked at uh, medical students who happened to be black, and they gave them a white, Asian, or black doctor, and they found that they were more compliant with preventative uh, care. And we know preventative care is so important, but, you know, switch gears for a second. I mean, we're talking about uh, mentoring and having more African-American physicians and patients being more comfortable. Is there anything else from a physiological or medical point of view that's unique within the African-American culture or African-American population that they should be or we should be talking about today in terms of either diet, lifestyle, other inherent medical issues? I think all the above, you know, lifestyle and unhealthy life choices and education is a, is a right. major thing. Is there anything unique within the African-American uh, population? There's unique diseases in each population. So you're a kidney doctor. You deal with a lot of hypertension. I mean, what's unique in terms of uh, the kidneys? Well, African Americans typically are more salt sensitive, and that comes from the climate. So you're saying they come from a warm climate. Maybe exactly. they evolved over time to retain salt. Exactly. So the treatments for those are reduction in your dietary salt intake and diuretics if need be. Understanding those nuances for physicians who aren't of that and how about, background. How about uh, typical, like, you know, I love Southern food. I grew up in Maryland. There's a place in D.C. You go in Southeast D.C., you can get typical Southern food. But let's face it, a lot of the typical Southern foods and what people, some may equate to African-American traditional foods are high in salt and fat. Is that true? Yeah, there's cultural, right? So, so I mean, the typical Southern diet. Correct. Especially with African-Americans was a lot of leftover foods, right? High salt foods. Salt was a big preservative back in the South and everywhere in the North. Right. So a lot of that's translated to... Traditional foods that are enjoyed now. So, I mean, right. it's easy for a doctor to say, you know, don't eat this. But maybe understand why someone may be eating something. I think we talked about before right. that if you just dismiss and say, don't eat this, eat this, it's very unlikely that someone's going to necessarily follow you and follow your recommendations. But there's also economics, too, right? So convenient food is cheap. If you go to a certain neighborhood, you'll see Popeyes and McDonald's. And if you go to other neighborhoods, you're going to see Whole Foods and things like that. Which, and we know it's expensive. If you want to eat organic, you want to eat uh, healthy. It's very expensive. It's it's uh, it's unfortunate. Absolutely. All right. So the uh, the so healthcare think, was a success. I think it was good. Yeah. So there's a lot of mentorship by example, and hopefully some young kids saw me and realized that you know if I can do it, I'm sure they can do it. But I think we need to. Do other things like improve medical education, financing, with grants and scholarships, and just build a mentorship program, right? So I think um, that'll help address those issues. That was great, and it was a little deep, but... Um, but I think it was very timely for this month. We'll make it a little late. Are you doing anything specific to celebrate Black History Month besides uh, dispersing just, information and knowledge across just, the land? I'm just going to be black and try to stay alive. I think that's... And I'm going to be sitting right next to you and just enjoying the rides. So, all right. Did you watch the Super Bowl? You know... It's funny you say. I watch the Super Bowl. I watch it every year. Um, this was probably, I'm sure most people agree out there, the most boring Super Bowl. 
I've ever seen. And I wasn't a big fan of the halftime show, but we're not here to critique that. But So I was thinking about playing in the NFL, right? You know, even though I'm 40, right. I think I could be like the black Tom so Brady. So you're, you're, uh, you're 40, you're uh, maybe 175 pounds soaking wet, but absolutely, I, I think you would have had a great future if it wasn't for this whole medical so, thing. So I have a dilemma, right? So my youngest started playing flag football. Shout out to Christian. And, and no, I can't say Christian without Noah. Uh, and I'm going to have to say shout out to Naveen because uh, my son played as well. And his coach was very uh, – who was his coach? Oh, his coach was me. In flag. In flag. So what did you think about that? So uh, one thing is before, before I get your opinion, mm. um, I didn't really want him to play because I felt he might like it too much and then want to play tackle football. So this is a nice intro to our next topic, which is really – you know, and this is something that uh, starts early and goes all the way to the NFL and beyond is – Health risk, right, with the NFL. So he's playing flag, and my wife wants to put a helmet on. Like, right. He'd be the only guy with a helmet playing flag <laughs> football. So well, why do you think football is so dangerous? Or, you know, they used to use leather helmets back in the day. Now, Well, let's take a step back. You know, we pop Warner football, tackle football is definitely uh, dropping in enrollments in the last decade. But we see a inverse proportion of number of kids playing flag football, right? And they think that, okay, parents like yourself, like myself, that grew up playing football or being fans of football, but now we know more and more some of the dangers and a lot of the dangers involved with football that uh, they don't necessarily want their kids playing tackles. They figured let them enjoy some of the skills and let them have fun but play uh, flag, which is deemed to be a healthier version. But is it a, a gateway drug? Is it a, Well, that's the issue, right? So some people say, hey, kids will get into flag. And what's the at some point, you know, it used to stop at fourth grade. Now kids are playing all the way through middle school. But at some point, uh, kids may want to play tackle. And then the issue is – I think that's an important topic to discuss today. Is what do we tell parents as physicians and as parents uh, ourselves uh, if, I, if our kid wants to play football? You know, so truth be told, my kid is like me. He's on the smaller side, so I don't think I have to worry about that. We're kind of pushing tennis and cross country. But, you know, for a lot of kids out there, it's an all-American sport right after baseball. And we know no more now in terms of some of the health dangers. So what are your thoughts? But kids are playing it not to be an NFL you know, superstar, but they're playing it just to have an activity. So, so that comes into the issue. One is uh, that, you know, the brain is what we call neuroplastic when your kid is still developing. So we're realizing more and more that so getting about hits, concussions. Yeah, concussions okay. and hits and repetitive hits. Not even just concussions, repetitive hitting uh, at an age where the brain is still forming can be extremely detrimental. You know, um, we talked about things like CTE that's in the news, chronic traumatic encephalopathy where Football players are having these brain injuries. But, you know, these are grown men who are understand the risks, who are pay, being rewarded very handsomely uh, for it. So they probably understand these risks. But what about children who now are being playing tackle football? Are there long-lasting effects? And the, and the data is now showing that there can be. And actually, you know, some people have said there's a, a flight of people leaving tackle football. In some populations, in other populations, there's no other choices. And so it's either— You can use the word. Black flight? Well, actually, white flight. it's actually, you know, there's an article that came out recently, uh, the great white flight from football. And uh, this is actually very interesting and very uh, eye-opening, if you really, because, you know, it's easy. Uh, we happen to live in northern New Jersey. There's lots of different opportunities. Your kids play tennis. My kid plays tennis. Uh, there's, you know, you can do lacrosse. You can do soccer. You can do swimming. But for a lot of, you leave the coast. You go to the, the south. You go to the middle part of the country. You go to more rural areas. It's really not a whole lot of opportunities available. Right. Some places, football is all they have. So, you know, if you have, and, you know, we talked about before, you have to look at medicine um, as a public health issue. And we can't just have medicine uh, and understand that families all come from the same socioeconomic status. So imagine a single mom, she has an option of either having her children play football after school and staying out of trouble or perhaps getting involved in gangs or other things, right? right? So now, who are we as a physician to say, no, don't have your child play football? There is no other option. 
you know, the, 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 she's unable to send her kid to uh, foreign language class, computer class. Uh, there is no other sports. There's no violin. There's no arts and humanities. You know, this is usually a lot of these disenfranchised areas. Uh, football is all you really have is an after-school sport. And football may lead to education opportunities, right? High school or scholarship in, in college. So for a lot of families, you know, we know that the best bet for their child to succeed to get out of whatever situation, dire situation they may be in, is through football. They, the only way their child may attend college is through a football scholarship. So this becomes a kind of a double-edged sword, right, when we talk about uh, the dangers of football. At the same time, there's plenty of uh, benefits. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I think uh, I know the answer. I am a fan. And, you know, then it becomes, should I feel guilty about being a fan? Are you right. guilty? I mean, I consume it. I watch it. Uh, but, you know, as opposed to when I was younger, I don't always get the same satisfaction looking at these big hits, you know. I think part of it is we're evolving as a society, looking at you know this gladiator-like sport. Right. Um, they've had a lot of improvements with concussion, concussion recognition and technology. Um, like I said, they came from le- wearing leather helmets without face masks. So. But I'm guessing the linemen weren't that big back then, right? They're bigger, they're right. faster, so they're stronger. It's not natural for you to weigh 200 pounds to run full speed into a 300-pound person and repetitively over and over Correct. Again. Is that all just football, or what about hockey? There's concussions yeah, the, in hockey. There's former players suing the NHL. Right, concussions. so I mean, boxing is not the. There's plenty of you know. We're talking about football today, but you're absolutely right. A lot of these uh, physical sports do have a lot of the similar issues, and so we it's keep not our just, kids out of all of those. That's because the it, white white flight from football is going into hockey. It's going to hockey. It's lacrosse. going to lacrosse. It's going into soccer. And you know, repetitive heading can cause similar type issues. Um, so I don't I think, think tennis, it's, uh, tennis is pretty safe, though. I think so. so I, I hate to be the that guy, but I don't think it's a black or white thing. I think it's just an opportunity thing, right, or a socioeconomic issue. And that's what it comes down. Yeah, absolutely. So we happen to live in a relatively affluent area, right outside uh, Manhattan. Football's played in urban areas mostly. Or rural areas. You ever been to Texas right. in the middle of summer? This yeah. is it. This football or, you know, uh, you go to Alabama, you go to Georgia. This is a big part, uh, even in the middle part of Pennsylvania. This is a part of the American vernacular. This is a part of American tradition. It's going to be very hard to give it up. I mean, you know, and I'm not saying that we need to, but I think uh, we have to continue to look, acknowledge that there are health risks. And what health risks are we talking about here? Besides just the trauma from a brain injury. Well, that trauma can lead to depression. You, we've seen some suicides, but you know, obesity is a. How about these linemen that weigh three hundred forty pounds? They're encouraged uh, during college, during high school, to gain thirty, forty, fifty, sixty right. so pounds. So when you're in college and you start your NFL career, it, you know it's relatively okay to be that that big because you're you're using it for a reason. But when you retire, you know it's an issue. You have sleep apnea. You have arthritis. Heart disease. Chronic pain. I mean, a lot of these players have been, you know, this is the, you know, the kind of the uh, thing that no one talks about. A lot of these players are playing through chronic pain. They're being prescribed opioids, opioids and other uh, types of uh, analgesics or medication to take away the pain. And then what do you do when you stop playing football? You know, you're, you're still hurting. You're 340, 50 pounds. Now you're overweight. You have and you can't lose that weight because you're not exercising with the team anymore. You're not exercising the team, but you're still used to eating like you were for the last 20-some years, like you were encouraged to, to continue to gain weight. Um, this becomes an issue. And I know the NFL has tried to uh, uh, identify some of these issues. They're trying to have more health screenings, et cetera, but there's still a long way to go. I think there was, it was not long ago when they weren't acknowledging the, the existence of uh, some of these issues. So That's what I'm saying. I think we're evolving. To we're a, evolving. Right? To hopefully a place where you know, this sport can be practiced in a safe manner um, in a way that our kids can enjoy it without necessarily having the risks. And but I it, think but it, we have also have to just discuss or mention that inherently 
it is a physical game. Inherently, you are trying to and literally destroy the other player. That's some, the joy out of it, too. I like seeing hits and stuff. I tell you, as I get older, as I'm a father now, I don't uh, like watching it. And I don't like some I, other stuff. I hate seeing the helmet to helmet type hits. Right. You know, but they've they've regulated that out of the game. So hopefully. Listen, I'm a Redskins fan. I haven't seen a Super Bowl uh, appearance since 1991. Any chance this is going to happen? 68 Jets? Who are you telling? Oh, boy. So we are both out of luck here. I don't know. Thank you for joining us. To hear more episodes, go to holyname.org slash recommended daily dose. I'm your host, Dr. Surid Sugger. And I'm the Black Tom Brady, a.k.a. Dr. Clinton Coleman. All right. Happy Black History Month to all, and talk to you next time. Check out recent episodes and learn more about these two modern medicine men and their podcast at holyname.org slash recommended daily dose.